Thanks for that introduction, Kyle. Uh, it is really great to be with you guys, even though it's virtual. Um, like Kyle said, my name is Anthony. Um, so current, I live in PA, as Kyle said. By day, I work as a global logistics specialist. That is a very fancy way to say that I'm a travel agent for cargo. Uh, and by night, I'm doing my MDiv, which is a fun workload both ways. Um, I'm married to my wonderful wife, Jenna, who I think you saw on the screen earlier, but she had to kind of go over there because I can have somewhat erratic hand motions when I'm teaching. So just going to put that out there as a fair warning for everyone. Uh, she is way cooler than me in every way. She works as a um, mobilizer for a missions agency up here in Pennsylvania um, called ABWE. And even though our address says Pennsylvania, we really love Baltimore. Uh, I'm a Maryland native. I'm wearing my Raven socks right now uh, to rep for the game later. Um, and is and Baltimore is a city incredibly dear to our hearts. Uh, we spent three and a half years in the Patterson Park area as core team members of a church. And we moved up this way because of, of, of Jenna's job. But we still drive down that way often uh, just to hang out with friends and spend some time in the city and in that area that we love. And so it's so great to be with you all this morning and to, to meet faithful Christians and pastors and churches in the Baltimore area who are laboring for the gospel and caring for the people just as you all are. And so all I really want to do with our time this morning is just to offer you some encouragement from the scriptures as you continue to do that into the new year. Um, and so to do that, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44. So Mark 6, 30 through 44. Now, as you turn there on your Bible, on your Bibles, or I guess scroll there on your phones, or even kind of tab over on your computer, because I guess you can do that, um, you'll probably notice a subheading uh, of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Now, if you have been a Christian for any length of time, uh, you spent any time in church, maybe have a few Sunday school classes under your belt, you've probably heard this, this story before, uh, this incredible account of Jesus feeding this whole crowd of thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, you don't, or maybe you don't have a ton of familiarity with the Bible, uh, your ears may have just perked up a little bit of that because you're like, am I hearing that correctly? Jesus did fed how many people with, with what? Like, this is quite the astonishing claim, right? Like, if this were true, Jesus is a very special person and would be the world's greatest caterer. Um, but if we examine this story this morning, and as we dig in to how Mark is telling us this story, I want us to come away with one big idea. So our big idea is this. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd who offers rest and provision for his people. So that one more time, so I kind of sped it through it. Jesus is a compassionate shepherd who offers rest and provision for his people. So with that kind of header in mind, I'm going to read the text for us, and then we're going to jump right in. So Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Uh, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going. And they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them 
many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread to give them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and a fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. So jumping right into our text, the first thing that we are immediately confronted with is that Jesus offers rest. Remember, a big idea is that Jesus is a compassionate shepherd who offers rest and provision to his people. And right off the bat, we see Jesus offers rest. So we read in the first part of our passage that the apostles returned to Jesus. They told him all they had done and taught. And he told them to go away to a desolate place and to rest for a while because they didn't even have leisure to eat. And so remember, we're in Mark 6, starting in verse 30. So we're, we're kind of jumping like right into the middle of chapter 6 here and the events preceding it. So a fair question to start with would be, well, where are the apostles returning from? Like, what were they doing before this account takes place? And to find that answer, we just got to kind of cruise up to Mark 6, verse 7, where Jesus sends disciples out to heal and cast out unclean spirits. And by the instruction of Jesus to them, you get the feeling like this wasn't just a couple hour activity. It wasn't like Jesus kind of lined them up and said, all right, guys, today's daily activity. Uh, We're going to cast out demons from 8 to 11. And then from like 12 to 3, we're doing brunch on the Mediterranean. Right. Like this probably took some considerable time. They had to go to surrounding countrysides. They couldn't Uber there. They had to do their whole thing, come back. And now they were all returning. And that's where our text kind of picks up this morning. And in my mind's eye, I can kind of see this all taking place. Like the disciples are returning. The band's getting back together. They're all excitedly telling Jesus all the miraculous things that happened to them, everything they saw. But in the midst of this excitement, the scriptures record for us that they were wiped out. They were totally exhausted. And they had a reason to be. Like I worked in my fair share of lunches. I'm sure we all have worked our fair share of lunches. We have gone days where we're just plugging away all day and we get to the end of the day and we're grumpy and we haven't had food and we're, we're tired. But this seems like it's more than just working through a couple lunches. Like this seems like it's continual ongoing work and they are wiped. And so Jesus looks on them and he sees that they're tired And he tells them to go to a desolate place and to rest for a while. Now, this idea, desolate place, I want us to bookmark that for a second uh, because he, he, this, this word is used a couple times in this passage in pretty short order. And there's a reason for that. So let's make a quick mental note, desolate place, just kind of bookmark it and we'll come back to it. But essentially, Jesus is telling his disciples to rest and to maybe take a retreat. And if you have been around church culture or church people at all, you know that church people love their retreats. Like, this is what we do. Don't know why. 
but there's some truth to this, right? Like rest is an incredibly good thing. And Jesus is telling his apostles, them whom he has empowered to go heal and to cast out demons, he is telling them to rest, to take a break. For even though they were supernaturally charged up to do these miraculous works, they still needed rest. And there is something inerrant to us as humans that we require rest. And this need for rest is not really something like we'll ever move beyond. Sure, maybe as, as, as kids, we need more rest than we do as fully formed adults. But we still need rest. Like if we don't sleep, terrible things happen. Rest is a feature to our humanity. It is not a bug. And so as we read the Gospels, we see Jesus himself even resting. And leading up to this, this passage in Mark, we see Jesus resting at what may seem like strange times. The first being in the chapter, in chapter one of Mark, where everyone's looking for him and he's just resting. And two, in the, in the bottom of a boat in the middle of the storm, we see Jesus resting. And then later, after the events of this chap of this little sequence this morning, later in this chapter, we see Jesus going alone to a mountain to pray. And the verdict being, Jesus rests. Rest is a good thing. And believe me, like, I know how wildly strange this can sound to some of our maybe modern sensibilities. We live in a culture that teaches we grind now and we work hard now and we hustle now so that maybe we can rest later. Uh, I was in New York a couple weeks ago and I was standing on some like random street corner in Manhattan. And I overheard this conversation between this guy next to me dressed like Santa talking to another guy dressed like Santa. And he kind of looks at him and he says, if you ain't busy, you ain't living. And it's kind of comical, but I found that kind of the perfect encapsulation sometimes of how we think. We got to stay busy. We got to keep our notes to the grindstone at all times. There is zero time for rest. There's zero downtime available. And if there is, we're doing something wrong. And while there is value in work, there is so much value in work. We can read the scriptures and we realize that we are made to work. When Adam and Eve are put into the Garden of Eden, they weren't just put in the garden to live a life of leisure. They were put in the garden with the task of cultivating the garden, with the task of caring for the garden. And so we read that work is a good thing, even from the opening passages of Genesis. But along with work being a good thing, we can also see that there is a pattern of work and rest that is created. Again, going back to the opening pages of Genesis, we see God creating this pattern of work and rest as he himself took a day of rest on the seventh day of creation. And then in the Old Testament law, there's provisions for the people to take days of rest and for the land to have seasons of rest. Rest is kind of built into the fabric of God's creation. And as we reflect on this pattern in scripture, um, some can get a little carried away and want to draw really hard and strict lines about taking a, a full day of rest and, and what that means and really like delineate what, what is rest and what is not rest with very sharp lines. And those can be really helpful discussions to have. And I want to encourage some of those discussions. And we can spend so much longer tracing this idea through scripture. But before we do that, and before we even get there, let's answer a much simpler question of do we rest and how do we rest? 
do we take, do you take any scheduled downtime at all? Or if, and if we do, is the downtime just like scrolling on our phones or kind of mindless leisure? And I say this as someone who loves to rest by just scrolling the same Facebook loop for hours on it. Like I've been there, trust me, I do it way too much. But let me invite us all to think through what a healthy rest pattern looks like. Because as we study scriptures, as we really look at the gospels, we see that Jesus offers rest. In Matthew, we see Jesus calling out those who are burdened. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because as followers of Jesus, we can rest knowing that God is at work and he is accomplishing his task. And while he has called us to join with him in this marvelous work of redemption, he's called us to be his active hands and feet in our communities and in this world. He has also called us to rest. For as we rest as Christians, we're conditioning ourselves for the coming new heavens and new earth, where God has made all things new. And in our rest, we are routinely reminding ourselves of the work that Christ has done in in securing our redemption and taking the burden of sin on himself so that we can be free to rest. So, yes, work hard, labor in Perry Hall for the gospel, labor in loving and caring for your family, work as unto the Lord at your job, be involved in your neighborhood, love and serve your church. Yes, do all these things. But in the moments in between, find time to rest, to enjoy the good gifts the Lord has given you, and to trust that he is at work even when you aren't, or even when you can't, because there probably will be those times. And in that rest, take some time to delight in the rest that Jesus has given us, and that Jesus has secured for us. And so as we keep reading in our text, we see that Jesus does invite his disciples to rest. Jesus invites us to rest. But in this passage, the crowd that was kind of following them around, they had other plans. We read there in verse 32 going into 33, and they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. So remember how a few verses ago, Jesus sent his disciples out to heal and cast out demons. And they came back with like these reports of success. Well, apparently, uh, when you do miraculous works like that, you begin to garner a certain reputation. Uh, People tend to really take notice of such things. And so we read that as they were trying to make a bit of a stealthy uh, getaway to their retreat weekend to this desolate place. Again, there's that word again, bookmark, instance number two. They were spotted and their whereabouts spread like a wildfire. And all these people from the surrounding villages who had witnessed or seen or heard about these miraculous works literally ran there on foot to the place they were heading to meet them, to kind of head them off. So much for their retreat weekend, right? And so we already have taken notice of how Jesus looks on the disciples and he sees their tiredness. But now let's notice how he looks on this crowd of people who just kind of chase them down. The text says this, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
And he began to teach them many things. And so instead of annoyance or frustration or pettiness, we see compassion. We see that the heart of Jesus was heavy for these people. And let's zoom in on that phrase that Mark uses here when he speaks of the reason Jesus had compassion. It says, because this crowd that was before him were like sheep without a shepherd. And on the outset, as we kind of envision this in our mind's eye and we think on the situation, that image makes a lot of sense. Because here are all these people that have spotted the direction the apostles were going. They dropped what they were doing. They ran to intersect them. So standing before Jesus and these disciples was this crowd of people who were likely kind of tired from running, who were probably gassed, like a little red face, and just all standing there waiting to see what Jesus and the apostles would do, would, do, would do next. And you can see how they would appear like sheep without a shepherd. But the importance of that phrase just doesn't stop here. Because in choosing this phrase, Mark isn't just being kind of clever or being a good writer. But instead, he is making a profound statement about who Jesus is and is really hyperlinking us back to some really important Old Testament texts and ideas. And so while, sadly, we do not have time to go through like a full Old Testament exploration, I want us to I want to hold one text up in particular for us because it relates directly to this account in Mark. And so if we turn our Bibles back to the Old Testament, to the book of Ezekiel and to chapter 34, we see a text that Mark is taking us back to and that Mark is really linking us toward. So at this particular point in the book of Ezekiel, God through Ezekiel is calling out what is referred to as the shepherds of Israel or those who are responsible for the care and guidance of his people. And if you read through the Old Testament, what you find is that the shepherd analogy is used a ton And it always consists of God being the greater shepherd of his people, but then appointing and equipping lesser shepherds to lead his people for a time. Uh, In the Old Testament, this is most clearly linked with kings and priests, judges, uh, the big ones like Moses and David and Solomon. People who led God's people who led God's people who led the Israelites for a time or through a season. And some people did that really well, like the ones I just mentioned. And some, not so much, right? Room for improvement. Uh, And so in this particular passage in Ezekiel in chapter 34, we see God calling out and rebuking some of these lesser shepherds because they had neglected the people of God. And so listen listen to this rebuke, Ezekiel 34, verse 8. And just let me, and tell me if it rings a bell. It says this, my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep. And so we notice that this is the same language that Mark is using. And I hope you're asking yourself, like, why would Mark take us back to this passage? And why is Jesus mentioning this passage? Why is our attention being directed here? And the reason is because as we keep reading that passage in Ezekiel, look what comes next. And notice how God responds when his people are shepherdless. Ezekiel 34, verses 11, 12, 15, 16. It says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, I myself 
will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so church, it's no accident that Mark is using this phrase when describing the compassion that Jesus had on the crowd. But instead, Mark is taking us back to this passage in Ezekiel. And he's saying, look, God has come to gather his sheep. And he's drawing a giant red circle around Jesus. And he's saying, look, this is the great shepherd that we have read about. Him who will seek out and rescue the lost sheep. Him who will lead them to lands of green pastures. Him who will bind the wounds of the broken. That he's standing right in front of us. It is this Jesus. And as the good shepherd shows compassion, he will also feed for, he will also feed and provide for his flock. Our text in Mark continues in verse 35. And it grew late and the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, desolate place. Third mention, not a lot of verses are working with here, but three times Mark uses that. And the hour is late. Send them away to the frowning countryside so they may buy themselves something to eat. So here we see the disciples were getting a little worried because here they are in the middle of nowhere. All these people had come from all these different places because of the reputation, because of the work that they were doing, and they had nothing to feed them with. This is my mom's worst nightmare, like worst case scenario. And so, Jesus, and so, the, and so they said to Jesus, let's take a break for today. Let everyone go to the surrounding villages and get some food. And I love the reaction of Jesus here in verse 37, he says, well, you give them something to eat. He says, you know what? You're right. They are probably hungry. They, they do need food. Why don't you feed them? And it's in moments like this where I just sympathize so much with the apostles because their plan makes so much sense. In terms of practical planning, in terms of event organizing, they had the right idea. You send them off, let them go get their own, their own food. It's a good plan. It's completely reasonable. But Jesus says, no, I don't like that plan. How about you feed them? And they get upset, as I'm sure we all would probably get a little upset. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and get to them to eat? And if you can't already tell, this response is absolutely dripping with snarkiness. Like this is pure sarcasm from the apostles here. Uh, a denarii was a Roman coin that was common currency and worth about a day's wages. And so 200 denarii was more than just a, some chunk chains, like not something you'll find in your couch cushions. It was 200 days of work. And so the clear irony of this passage is that the apostles did not or likely did not have this much money on them or even close. Uh, when Jesus sent them out to heal and cast out demons, if we already mentioned, he specifically told them to take no money. And so now they're returning from their ventures. So they took no money, probably didn't have a ton of money to begin with. And so when, when you kind of add everything up, they didn't have a lot of money. And so their response to Jesus, they are not actually suggesting a possible idea. They weren't putting in a budget line item. They were calling out the insanity of Jesus's proposal that, they should be responsible for feeding everyone. But even in spite of their hesitation and sarcasm, they go along with the plan and they go along with 
She gives us instruction to try to feed the hungry crowd. And so as our passage continues, Jesus has the apostles kind of come the crowd to see if they can find any food, see who brought what. And after a thorough search, all they could really find was five loaves of bread and two fish. And I always found this part of the narrative like really interesting because if I go anywhere for any length of time, I try to make sure I pack something or more importantly, and more of the case, my wife remembers to pack something, whether that be like goldfish or snacks or something that I bring with us. Um, but they didn't bring anything. And why? Why would that be? Well, it could be a number of reasons. It could be one that uh, there were some more people in the crowd and they just didn't pack anything because they had nothing to pack. It could be that they were so desperate to witness and partake in what Jesus and the apostles were doing and teaching that they just dropped everything to run and intersect them. And they didn't even think about bringing food with them. That wasn't on their radar at all. But no matter what the reason, here they are gathered around Jesus, hungry and desperate to hear what he would teach and to see what he would do. And so the apostles brought this meager meal and Jesus Jesus instructs the crowd to sit down in groups on the green grass. And when we read those details of them sitting in groups of hundreds and fifties on this particularly green grass, we think that is kind of a strange detail from Mark McKeon on here, right? Like of all the details in this story, what he chooses to make a clear note of is the seating arrangement, something that I don't think I've ever thought about in any account of anything ever. And so I, I kind of, this little detail kind of piqued my interest. And so I read up on this from scholars in Greek, and Greek was the original language that Mark would have written this account in. And what we find is that our English translation gives us kind of only half the story here. Because as Mark notes, they are sitting down in orderly groups. He is using a word that connotates flower bed or, or garden plot, which then helps us understand why he's referencing this green grass. And so when we put the pieces together, we see that Mark is painting for us a really beautiful picture of what this scene looks like. These kind of garden plots of people eating on the green grass. And now, thinking through this scene, we got to take note of how different this looks than what we would expect it to have looked just a few verses ago. Because remember, like coming into this point, Mark has continually referred to this place as what? A desolate place. Three times he said desolate place, desolate place, desolate place. And it's filled of hungry people that have no food. But now look at it. It's an oasis. It's teeming with plenty. It's these garden plots of people sitting in green grass, eating this abundance of food that Jesus has provided. And why is that? Because that is what the shepherd does. The shepherd provides for his flock. He leads his people from the wilderness and from the desolate place into the land he has prepared for them. And so again, we see Mark using this language to make sure that anyone who reads this will recognize Jesus as the shepherd who leads for and provides for his people. And so after Jesus has a crowd all like arranged accordingly and all seated how he wants them to, he took the bread and the loaves and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave to the disciples so they could distribute to the crowd. And the text records for us that everybody was fed, all of them, all 5,000 men. And since this text seems like it's only counting men, 
we can be rest assured this number was probably much higher when you include the women and children that likely accompanied this whole venture. And so Jesus has fed thousands of people with only five loaves of bread and two fish with room spare. The good shepherd has provided. And I want to be really clear because as this passage lifts up Jesus as the true and greater shepherd who is compassionate and who will richly provide for his flock, we can kind of easily misread this, this passage uh, that the flock in question would be these thousands of people he just had compassion on and, and whom he just fed. But remember that this passage isn't really directing our attention to the character of the crowd, but to the character of Jesus and is using this miracle as a way to do that. We don't know a lot about this crowd other than they were from the surrounding villages and more importantly, they liked to eat. But when we talk about the flock of God, we know exactly who Jesus is the shepherd of. Scripture is abundantly clear about that. It is his church. We see that in Acts 20, as Paul exhorts uh, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, he exhorts them to keep watch over the flock of God that he has purchased with his blood. Church, we are his flock. He is our good shepherd. And we were at one point, we were like this crowd. We were like sheep without a shepherd. We were wandering. We were lost. We were hopeless. We were hungry. But Jesus looked on us with compassion. And he richly provided for us. And just like the baskets in this text are overflowing at the end of this event, so are our spiritual blessings overflowing when we consider the glory of the gospel. We were once dead and now we're alive. We were once lost and now we're found. We were once a slave to sin, but now we're servants of God. We were once enemies of God, but now we're his children. We were once separated from God, but now we will enjoy him forever. What goodness we have in Jesus. And so as we go into this new year, let us consider what it means that Jesus is our shepherd. And to rest and delight in his compassion toward us and his provision for us. And as we think through this idea and as we wrestle through what that means, there are probably some of you on this call and in this Zoom room here, you are doing this really well. You, you may have been a Christian for a while and you've pursued a close walk with the Lord. And as we read about the shepherding care of Jesus, they are not empty words to you. They are a lived reality in your life. And I just want to encourage you to continue in that, to press on that, and to invite other Christians to walk alongside you. There are probably some of you and probably many of us who have experienced the shepherding care of Jesus but we can be so quick to forget it. Too often he is someone we turn to in case of emergency or if we need to be bandaged up, but we immediately kind of turn away and we begin to keep our distance. And then we begin to question his goodness and provision. And it's kind of just like this cycle. And there are probably some on this call who are currently walking or have walked through an incredibly hard season of, of loss or doubt or maybe pain or heartache, or it feels like you're walking alone in the dark and there is no shepherd guiding you. And maybe there are even some who wouldn't even say that Jesus is your shepherd because you, you wouldn't say that you follow him and you don't really know what to make of him yet. And so when we find ourselves in these places, in these seasons of forgetfulness or of darkness, 
or of doubting the character of our shepherd or of questioning his goodness and compassion, or even in a place where we're unsure what we believe about Jesus and whether he's even worth following. Let us remember that we do not follow a shepherd who was not sacrificed for his flock, but instead we follow a shepherd who has died for it. If we keep reading in Mark, we see that this that he had the compassion of Jesus doesn't just lead him to feed this crowd, but it leads him to the cross of Calvary where he was beaten and mocked and killed to pay the price of sin so that anyone who calls on him can live forever with him. So that through him, we can be restored into right relationship with our creator, that we can be made children of God. And so that in the word of the Psalm, we just read this morning in Psalm 23, so that we can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So let me just end this morning by holding Jesus high as our good shepherd, one who has laid himself down for his sheep, and one who is worth following with everything that we have. Let's pray. Uh, Father, you are so good to us. Lord, you are our good shepherd, and we thank you so much for that. So, Father, as we go into this new year, into this new week, into the rest of our day, Lord, teach us what it means to follow you with fervency, to follow you with with joy and love, even through, as again the psalm says, his value of shadow and death, Lord. Know that we can trust you and, and hold on to you and trust your provision and your goodness and your kindness toward us as displayed on the cross of Christ. Lord, thank you. In the name we pray. Amen.